Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to Excuse Me, May I Have Some More. We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. You are listening to episode 14. My name is Brad Kramer. I am joined by my co-host, Christine Strobel. Hey, Christine. Hello, Brad. How are you today? Um, I'm a little puzzled, so we can jump right off there. What I'm puzzled about, I cannot speak to, but I know you can because A, you consume products in this category I'm going to bring up. And B, you have written a number of different pieces over time about uh, this category that I'm about to bring up. Why in God's name are people releasing products, whether it's cup noodles, RX bar, Entenmann's, Starbucks, Kind Bar, etc., with pumpkin spice when it's 800 freaking degrees outside from coast to coast and when we're still in the... Heights of the summer heat. It, the floor is yours. Maybe people just need a really big warm hug, and pumpkin spice is that big warm hug. Okay. I got no response. That that was crickets. Absolute crickets. Um, if you're asking me why they keep moving it f- earlier and earlier every year, I, I'm not exactly sure. There was some talk at a point earlier in. 2021 that pumpkin spice was going to be over that millennials don't want it anymore they've moved on to something else they want uh an exciting different flavor pick whichever phraseology you would like to use it's Um, august how about watermelon well watermelon is a year-round fruit if we, we could pull out the facts from the watermelon watermelon board and talk about you know you can get watermelon 365. So that's not necessarily just the summer fruit. And, you know, I don't know why they keep putting pumpkin spice at the end of August. Um, I normally have one, maybe two. I will say the, the cup of noodles, pumpkin spice, not so bad. Pretty, you know, I suggest everyone have them at least once. Uh, just to say that you did that this kind of like, you know, the good, uh, feel like pumpkin ravioli on a chilly night. Okay, so that's why I seeded the floor to you at the beginning of this conversation. I have never had pumpkin spice anything. I don't eat pumpkin pie. I have not had pumpkin spice, you know, lattes, nothing. So I can't speak to the topic. And the first specific uh, item that you mentioned was the cup noodles, which for traditionalists is what every college student survived on as one of the variations of ramen noodles when there was no money and no appetite for doing anything else but zapping a quick meal. How is it that pumpkin spice, whose flavor profile I don't know or understand, can be translated into something like ramen noodles and be good like you just said it is? Well, you have to think about it this way. When you say pumpkin spice, it doesn't mean a whole bunch of sugar. If you think of what the flavor is technically in pumpkin spice, it's pumpkin. And then you have baking spices or, you know, pie spices. So nutmeg, clove, um, allspice, cinnamon sometimes. Those aren't necessarily just dessert flavors. So if you have a pumpkin ravioli or some people even take pumpkin and use it as a thickener in a pasta sauce. You can have p- 
pumpkin be savory. It's not just pumpkin spice shouldn't just be, hey, I've got a, you know, a latte frappuccino Milano cookie. It can be something else. So I'm not offended by the the cup noodles. I I think that one really kind of works in its own way. You know, previously, I think last year they had the pumpkin spice spam, which, you know, a lot of people were very offended by. But if you take that on a different route, that's like, you know, if you put that in hash, that worked. Wait, did you say spam? Yes, I did. And you singled out the fact that people were offended by pumpkin spice spam as if people aren't already turned off by spam, period. Unless you live in Hawaii and then it's like a delicacy. Spam, when it's prepared well, is tasty. No, spam should remain in its can and be used as a doorstop and nothing else. No, if if you put it in hash or you griddle it and you get it really crispy, that's pretty good. There's a lot of other food that you could be offended by that you're like, why the heck did they make that versus, you know, canned meat? Mm. I'll bet everybody now has just hit pause on this food cast and is running out to get canned meat. Well, but okay. (laughs) Would you prefer to have some genetically modified hybrid pseudo fruit? Sure. Why not? (laughs) So you would rather cotton candy grapes or a grapple because that's more appealing than a can of the, a, a piece of fried up spam and a hash. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stay on, on my side on this one. Okay. A case of grapple to you. That, well, that you're, that's like, you just asked me the food equivalent of like, you wouldn't think to get a puggle, would you? when shopping for a dog, just because it's combining two breeds of dog. So cotton candy grapes, certainly would not be appealing. Of course it would. Well, it's it's like, you know, the t- traditional food mashup. Where, at what point have they gone too far? Well, it does, well, in this case, it doesn't even have to be a mashup. It's a slimy block of mystery meat encased in a can that looks disgusting. I, I can't speak to how it smells or how it tastes. And I'll go to my grave being able to make that comment. Um, and you're sitting here defending it. Well, yes, because I don't, there are very few foods that I just say absolutely no to. I can't think of one recently that I just really am not overly fond. I mean, that I just refuse to eat. So to that part, that doesn't bother me. But you have a problem with a golden can because, you know, spam does come in a gold can and you won't eat that. But I have a feeling if someone gave you a hot dog, you'd be all for it. I'm, I'm totally down for hot dogs. Even if every 34 hot dogs take a day off of your life. So encased in a, in a tube is fine, but not encased in a can. Correct. Okay. So, so it has to do with the, the shape of, of the, the, how it's housed. So you're fine. With- no, you know, and we're coming off an episode where we discussed that godforsaken um, apple pie hot dog crap that, that you sung the praises of. This episode, you sing the praises of spam and pumpkin spice we, cup noodles. We should go to the spam museum. It's a lot you're like a walking chopped basket. Ooh, I, you know, I've done that before. I really have. Okay, so I want you to take the next time you have five minutes to put together a meal. And, and use your boys as a uh, panel and a, a set of judges. And I want you to take a can of Spam, a container of cup noodles, the uh, cotton candy grapes, and a fourth ingredient of your choice. And I want you to create, create a dish. Okay. I, the, the cotton candy grapes are really throwing me for... Uh, I could, the, one, the one time I actually did have to do something like this with a chef, many, many years ago during the National Restaurant Show, I did an event with... Stephanie Izard and Brian Malarkey and um, all the attendees, we were in teams of three and we had to do a dish with ingredients and we had like a hot plate to cook on. And I still remember to this day, the things that we had to include, it was scallops, corned beef, Mm. blueberries. Oh, see, now that's an easy one because you can use the corned beef like you would use bacon in wrapping a scallop. 
And then no, you could no. use the blueberry, blueberries to make a sauce to go on the scallops or with the scallops. That's, that's like a no-brainer. It, it was like, it wasn't sliced corned beef. It was like corned beef hash. Oh, as Emily Latella might have said. Oh, that's very different. Never mind. The influx of all of these pumpkin spice products in August um, just makes me think that somebody ought to be running It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown in August as well. And there's just something backwards about that and the all these products that have suddenly hit the shelves. We have fun interviews on this episode, like we always do. Um, the first interview that uh, wanted to play for you is, and for you, I mean the listening audience of this podcast, not for you, Christine. Um, this way, you're going to be forced to listen to the episode. I chatted recently with Donatella Arpaia, who people very likely know from um, her many years as a judge on Iron Chef America. And I believe she appeared on more episodes as a judge than anybody else. Um, more than the... Uh, Simon Majumdar or... Simon Majumdar, who we do talk about in the interview. And it's a, a pretty cute conversation because I was going to ask about him and she beat me to the punch. Um, Jeffrey Steingarten, who looks like the most miserable man on the planet. Um, and uh, some of the many people. I think Donatella has appeared more than anyone. Um, I wanted to talk to you about something that she and I discussed, and I'll do that after we play the interview. But um, I just wanted to say that it's fun talking to people. She has earned Michelin stars in her past. Her roots are as a chef um, and as people learn in my discussion with her, my conversation with her, she started her career as in a uh, short-lived role as an attorney and quickly transitioned into food. So she's got a really interesting backstory. We had a lot of fun talking. And one of the topics we talk about, I want to jump in on with you after we listen to the interview. But first, let's listen to my conversation with Donatella Arpaia. I know this is a food-related interview, but as someone whose full name is Bradley, I couldn't resist starting the conversation without asking about your dog. Oh, wait a second. Is he, is he here? Oh, my God. He's so cute. Yes. I, he's my first dog, Bradley. Uh, he's a COVID puppy. We got him. Um, I, he's, I'm obsessed with him. I got it from my son. Um, as a, well, Santa got it as a Christmas gift. And he actually, he was, he was named after a dear friend that passed away and he looked like Bradley. So we, we that was his name. And he's so cute. We love him. I'm obsessed. Even and, though my son didn't even uh, pass the test of like, if you don't walk him and do the minimal stuff, then you're, we're not keeping this dog. But I fell in love with him. And I found that he was the only one not barking at me. So I was like, he's just here to love me. I get it. I get it. Casual fans of yours might not know that you began your career as an attorney. A yes. short-lived, I guess a short-lived career. Can you talk about why, why it was short-lived and what compelled you to make that full pivot into becoming a chef and restaurateur? Sure. So I am, I am first generation, uh, the daughter of a restaurateur. Uh, who came from Italy and he started as a busboy and worked his way up. He was, you know, at Delmonico's with Ciro Maccioni and all those guys. And he was really the first one to elevate Italian cuisine, Lolo. He had famous restaurants in the 80s. And the one thing he wanted for me and my sister was to, you know, live the immigrant dream of becoming a lawyer or a doctor, certainly not be in the restaurant business back then. Uh, it was very different back then. And my son, who was the oldest, was groomed for the restaurant business and plug, he still has his restaurant, Cellini, on 54th Street, which I'm very happy that he just reopened because Midtown is really suffering, right. um, as you know, between Park and Madison. And so I just grew up surrounded, entrenched in the business, but knowing from day one that it was not something, wasn't even an option for me. And my dad always said, you know, be anything you want, but you should become a lawyer. 
And I'm like, okay. So I kind of thought that that's what I wanted to do. And then I, like a good Italian daughter, I became a lawyer and I, I really liked the study of law. I think it taught me how to think and train my mind. And I think it helped me in this rest, in the restaurant business. Um, and I was practicing for about three months and I was living above my brother's restaurant. And one night after I was eating for free at my brother's restaurant, of course, I wasn't making that much money. And um, I was just like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I was always very passionate and passionate. And then my brother like got stuck because his hostess didn't show up. It was raining. And all of a sudden I just got up, you know, instinctually and started helping him. And that's when I had my aha moment. And it was like, do this, you know, the ignorance of youth. I'm like, I can do it and I can do it better maybe. Uh, and I kind of never looked back from there. I told my dad, I was like, look dad, I know you want me to be a lawyer. I became a lawyer who said I could do anything I want. I'm going in the restaurant business. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the restaurant chooses you. And I love my happiest moments were growing up and, and being in the restaurant um, and Sundays, family dinners and, and food, and, you know, in our family, food is an art. And so um, I told him it was his fault. <laughs> and after that very expensive legal education, he's like, okay, if you're going to do it, I'll help you, but, you know, go all in. And I never looked back, never once had a regret. I opened my first restaurant at 20, not 28, Bellini on 52nd Street, and, yep. and then David Burke and Hotel, and I, I never, ever looked back. Never. And your dad had his aha moment at one point, at an early point, obviously. Like, oh, this is where she belongs. She's right. That's interesting. At first, remember, when I opened my restaurant, and I always talk to my friends, like Bobby Flay and all that stuff, that was like the internet just started. Like, that was when, you know, there were no celebrity chefs. It was more the restaurateur. It was a whole different time. But I think what I had instinctually was a keen sense of, you know, post-to-sing, marketing and PR and, and looking toward technology. I, I remember I was the, one, the first person to use Open Table, I think. So I think he, when he realized uh, what was happening and how I made a whole career, not only with restaurants, but as a brand, as a lifestyle brand and in terms of products, he's always like, oh, my daughter is an entrepreneur. She's not a restaurateur. Um, but yeah, he's proud of me. But like most Italians, uh, you know, I heard this from customers, not to me. When I opened my first restaurant, he's like, how come you don't have 10 already? And I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. Come on, Dad. But, you know, that's why we work hard. It's never enough. I recently chatted with HGTV star Hillary Farr on this podcast. And the reason I'm bringing her up, she has publicly stated and reiterated to me that she does not like pizza. As the chef and owner of New York's popular Prova Pizza Bar, can you tell us why she's wrong? I mean, I don't even like comprehend people <laughs> that don't like pizza or coffee. Those are the two things. I actually once had a boyfriend. He was quite famous, so I can't give the name. And it was years ago. And he's like, I don't Oh, this would be a great time to finally reveal his name. I mean, it would be huge. Oh, please. That would, that, would be, that would be wonderful for our podcast. I, it would really go viral. I'm telling you. Oof. Remember, when I opened my restaurant, I was like the only female doing what I was doing at that level. And talk about the Me Too movement. And you know how many people I could have exposed, but no, 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 no. Not doing it. Oh. Anyway, the point is, he didn't like coffee. I'm like, this relationship's not going to work. I love coffee. <laughs> and how can you not like pizza? I mean, pizza... I don't think she's ever had Neapolitan pizza then. That's what I'd like to ask her because for me, I remember my father was born in Naples and when I had my first bite, you know how they have, you know that movie Ratatouille when the critic becomes a child and we yep. all have these memories. I mean, I still remember when I had my first bite of Neapolitan pizza, I was very young and I was like, oh my God, like this is pizza. And I, <laughs> I think it's it's so it's one of the oldest and earliest forms of food and it really is like even bad pizza is good you like it it is an art form and I think it's a beautiful canvas and I think she doesn't like it because she hasn't had the real thing 
I sort of sense that that would be where this conversation would wind up. I'm thinking, uh, Simon Majumdar, who is a co-chef with me on um, Next Iron Chef, also didn't like pizza. And I was like, what's the matter with you? I would always fight about it. And he would be in his snooty British accent. I hope he's, he's going to listen to this because he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, since you brought him up, I'm, I'll reorder my mental questions because I did have a, a question relating to him for oh, later really? on. Yeah. Um, so I'll go to the Iron Chef America questions now since, since okay. you invoked his name and I'll push him to the top of it. Um, I have to ask, I'm dying to know, and I'm sure others have wondered the same thing. Is Simon Majumdar as snarky off air as he is on air? Absolutely. He is a true snarkerinian. Simon yeah. Majumdar, um, he's also, yeah, what you see is what you get. Um, I always said that, you know, Iron Chef America was the most real of all reality TV because, you know, the where there are other shows that came out where it became more about, um, you know, the personality of the chefs. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but these were, we were dealing with high level chefs on Iron Chef and the, the contestants that came on took it extremely seriously. So I couldn't diminish that. And, you know, Simon Majundar, and I'm complimenting him now, he, you know, he's an extremely thoughtful person. He's an excellent judge, despite his bad taste and not liking pizza. Um, he's very witty um, and he's very snarky. And I, and I, we, I miss that snarkiness. I'm gonna have to give him a call. Yes, he's snarky. And um, I, I definitely have a better palate than him. As all women do, I think we have more taste buds and we love to argue. So it was fun. It was all right, fun. I'm gonna have to ask him that question. Um, and, and that's the perfect segue because Iron Chef America was a serious culinary competition with serious yes. chefs and serious judges. So I'm dying to know how you felt. And if I'm not mistaken, you were among the most regularly appearing judges or the most. Yeah. Yes, um, I think the most and female as okay. well. Um, but I, boy, did I have to eat a lot of food. Uh, so, yes, and it was really great because I was at the beginning and I was also at the beginning of Next Iron Chef and I really saw the growth of even these masters, you know, so Bobby and uh, when Michael Simon became, right. we voted Iron Chef. But I also saw not only, of course, I can go to Bobby's restaurants and I go and I can go to Morimoto's restaurants, but having them personally cook for me. And then see them also grow by being on the show because they had to really um, learn different ingredients and different styles. And I remember when, you know, Bobby and Michael went to Italy one summer and they came back and they started cooking Italian for me. Uh, they didn't get the gnocchi as good as I can, but no, I, I saw them grow and I got to experience like the best food in the world. Um, and it was difficult because, you know, you know these chefs so well. And at the end of the day, to keep the book straight, you just have to judge what's in front of you. And I think my law, my career as a lawyer helped me because at the end, it often would come down to whether someone salted or not salted. You know, when you're dealing with a high level right. of people to begin with, it comes down to like nuances. So it was, it was a great experience. We need to bring it back. To the point you just made, serious chefs, serious competition, you have that refined palate where you can differentiate between two great dishes. How did you feel about sharing the judges table occasionally with celebrities, a Kathy Griffin, a, um, a Kelly, a Kelly Ripa. Kelly Ripa. Halloween battle. Yeah. Um, These are not yeah. food people. They're not chefs and they're judging the food in the same context as you are, but they're not equipped to. Yeah. I think that, you know, that was really, that's a great question because um, not many people ask that. You're good, my friend. Um, what would happen is number one, I think that there were people that, you know, were not foodies that came on and that were celebrities. And at least they had the honesty to like ask me questions sometimes or I tried to guide them. Um, there were a few times where I, I, I felt that some of the people should not be on. <laughs> 
there and I felt very strongly about it and I made sure I steered things in the way that it should go just by my 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 point system uh but overall the people like I remember um Kaylee Cuoco came on and she she was she was such a foodie so she loved it so a lot of these actors and actresses that are celebrities were honest foodies they had a great palate and so it was good my funniest one was I think Battle Scotch with David Berker and his husband Neil Patrick Harris oh, yep. they were fun they are so they were so fun so sassy um we've I, I had so many my goodness so many memories and thank god they would stop when they would have me do double battle shows because that was a lot of food I mean they edit us down to you know this much but the tasting right Quite long, and you would you would welcome if they brought it back in its original form. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I'm glad I'm not alone in thinking that. With uh, you know Alton, of course, crazy Alton, and of course the chairman. I love I love these guys and um, the production company. They uh, triage. It was such a great team and a magical magical time. And it was the birth of so many stars. You know. So many stars that are now household names. My next question was going to be about your partnership with Galbani. Yeah. So my Pizza Expo, Pizza Expo in Las Vegas is next week. I am the brand ambassador for Galbani, the number one cheese of Italy. Um, And that came very organically because when I opened up Prova, I did a blind tasting of of the cheese. I told uh, my purveyors, I said, bring me the top three or four. And I didn't want to be influenced by names or anything. And I chose Galvani in a blind tasting. And it's interesting because it reminded me of the mozzarella that I grew up with in Italy. because I spent my summers there and it was in fact. And so when I told my parents, I'm like, I was like, you know, I'm the brand ambassador for Galvani. I never heard of them. They're like, what? Galvani Gordina Fiducia. So I grew up with it, not remembering the name. And so it happened very organically. I'm very proud to be. Um, the brand ambassador. Circling back to the whole pizza conversation, for a layperson and somebody who's not a chef and not involved in the culinary field, what makes a cheese the best? Mm. What makes Galbani's mozzarella, for example, the best? Well, first of all, um, I'm going to give you two basic things. When you go, and now Galbani actually is available in stores as well. When you, when you look for mozzarella, number one, I think a lot of people, because we're Americans, we look for like the the white toothpaste and we think the whiter it is, the better. No, mozzarella should be the color of milk. So, and if you see it overly white, usually there's like titanium dioxide and all these things that aren't good for you. Um, So it should have a natural flavor and Galbani has always uh, kept true to their traditions. And um, I visited their plant and they're just, the closest I have found to, you know, being in Italy in terms of the taste. And now also for pizza, the melt, okay? The melt, the cheese melt. Now, when you go to pizzerias, you know, and you go for the dollar slice or there's, or these massive chains, you know, often it's not cheese, it's like oil and byproducts. So um, all natural, authentic milk taste, um, you know it when you try it and you look for a great melt and not so oily. Right. So, so yeah. pre-pandemic, were there plans or do you still have plans that have just been bumped out to take Prova Pizza Bar and expand it outside of the New York locations? Yes, pre-pandemic, there were a lot of bids and um activities, especially in the airports to expand out of New York. Um, you know, the locations happen to be Grand Central and Times Square, which before COVID were like the most sought after. And now uh, during COVID are the most, probably the most difficult places to be during a pandemic. I, because New York is a tale of many cities right now. So downtown, and uptown, it's great. Right. Midtown is really hard. You know, it's it's all tourism and office, which still hasn't come back yet. So I think that, um, and now I live also in Miami, so I go back and forth. So, and I have to tell you, the pizza here, not so good. So I might, you know, like, what's his name from The Godfather? I'm trying to get out, but they pull me back in. I might have to do something in Miami. And so we'll see. 
on hold right now. Everything is like pause. Everything is in pause mode. In, until the landscape becomes until clear. Until the landscape clears, because I think it's just too difficult to see what's going on. So chefs are known to be purists. And um, as a result of that label, and I'm labeling it, and you, you, you're welcome to contest that. But I'm curious to hear your reaction when you first heard about the trendy appliance that is the air fryer and how your passion for it has grown through your work with Philips. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And I always say, like, to make space on my counter, it better be worth it because I get sent a lot of stuff. Right. And my like, seriously, like, I can't. And, you know, as, as chefs where, you know, a good chef knife sometimes is all you need. Um, but the pandemic, first of all, I've always been a Philips fan. When I launched my meatballs on HSN, they launched the air fryer. And I remember back then meeting them. I'm like, this is so weird. Like, what the heck is an air fryer? I'm like, whatever. Like, nothing's better than fried food. But I started a relationship with them. And once in a while, they would send me stuff. And, and you know, the products were always top of the line. And then during COVID and the pandemic, when all of a sudden remote learning, I'm stuck at home, but yet I'm like Zooming and doing so many interviews like I'm doing right now, because what was the biggest thing that everyone wanted to know was how to cook. Do you know that was like the number one Google search was how to cook during the pandemic? Sourdough bread and banana bread. I would find, and also we were limited in terms of the food that you could get and shopping. And I would find that my husband would come home from work and my kids and I was working all day and I had no time to cook dinner for my own family. And I remember I, I was on TV and uh, Caitlin, uh, the person from that I always speak to is head of domestic appliances, North America at um, Phillips said, I'm like, I need an air fryer. And I got one in Target because I just didn't have time to reach out to you. And she's like, get that off. And I realized that not all air fryers are built the same. And air fryer is a game changer because it kind of is like a tiny, okay, besides it makes healthier food. Besides that for a second, which is important, I think why it's become so popular is because um, you can cook uh, a third of the time faster. Product usually comes out better than in an oven and um, it's just less cleanup, which is a game changer if you're a working mom or dad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's uh, naturally how this whole uh, relationship grew with Phillips. Remember, unlike many other chefs, I am a mom um, with three kids now. So, yeah, I have a different perspective. Well, and it's interesting because I have actually written a couple of pieces on with featuring recipes including your recipes and each of them have included use of the air fryer and it has always struck me as fascinating because you know just talking about pure frying it used to be that a chef would say give me the cast iron pan give me some good oil and and so this is a little bit of a sea change and um, i've been fascinated by it so i had to ask about it yeah, and I'm also uh, a little older, and we have to watch our calories now. So, look, I'm not saying that a French fry is a French fry is a French fry, and um, some things. Yeah, you know, I remember when we filmed Next Iron Chef in Japan, um, and I would go to these tempura places that were just dedicated to tempura. So, uh, I still fry the old way too, but um, for me, Phillips has become like this lifesaver appliance for home and just for getting dinner on the table for three picky kids. Right. So I was even fascinated. That don't share my palate. Ah, see, there you go. um, One of the recipes that that I saw of yours that I wrote about that I thought was fascinating was your brioche French toast. Yeah. And never in a million years would I think, oh, you can make a great brioche French, French toast that's a tongue twister in an air fryer. So I, I'm just, I'm, I was fascinated about that whole. Do you have a Phillips air fryer? No. Do you have any air fryer? I have one of the air fryer ovens. Okay. So that like, that's not even an air fryer. First it's of like all, a toaster that does. Yeah. I know. So you have like a toaster. So I'm going to send you a Phillips air fryer and you tell me what you think about it. Okay. Deal. My for you. Absolute deal. I, I will embrace that. And yes, 
that'll, upgrade, that'll be fun. Upgrade to Phillips. They've been around for like over a hundred years and the quality does matter. So yes. Mm-hmm. See, and that's the other thing. And before I get to my last question, not to belabor a point, you see celebrity chef partnerships and ambassadorships that you can tell that they're just going through the motions and they have cut sure. a deal. And then you watch you and your videos and your demonstration. You're clearly passionate about what no, I, I am. As a matter of fact, this is not your typical uh, brand ambassadorship doing it. This is something that happened and I am actively involved in um, doing a master series. Um, I'm very passionate about it because my fan base uh, have communicated to me. And, you know, I, if I can get people to fall in love with cooking and to make uh, healthier food choices, and if there's appliances that actually benefit and add, I'm not, I don't want to sell you something just to tell you something. Uh, everything with me has to be very authentic. And that's why I don't have a lot of brand partnerships. It's just Phillips and Galbani happened naturally through my pizza concept. And it was a blind tasting. And the same with Phillips. I've just, it kind of just happened with the pandemic when it kind of was a lifesaver to me. So, yeah. And, and that authenticity sure. is picked up by the consumer, yeah. which is, which is great. I mean, otherwise it, it comes off as very artificial. So. And speaking of authenticity, I, I will say this now too. They just sent me the Philips latte go espresso machine that I'm, you know, I'm Neapolitan. So we're obsessed with pizza and coffee. <laughs> and it grinds the coffee. It filters the water. It is so good. So uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of coffee videos next year. So it's going to be fun. Oh, that'll be fun to watch. Yes. Be- before I let you go. Um, like Do you drink coffee? I know I'm not supposed to interview you. But. So so how's the weather? <laughs> Come on. I have never had a cup of coffee in my life. How is that possible? I have nothing nothing cute or witty or pithy to say after and making that Wait, admission. Where, where were you raised? Uh, I, actually, I was raised by a woman who, if she could have wheeled around a coffee IV drip 24-7, she would have. Okay. And because of that, you were against coffee? I, I, I don't know. It's just nothing that I've ever tried. Um, it's so interesting because as an Italian, like my mom gave me coffee. I remember the first time I was like eight and you have it with milk, with cookies in the morning. So, right. I mean... I was introduced to it from such an early age. I'm, I'm, I, I'm like a lover. I'm obsessed with coffee. I'm obsessed with milk. I'm obsessed with pizza. I'm obsessed with coffee. I'm obsessed with Italian food. I'm obsessed with feeding people. And uh, yeah. So next time we chat, we're going to have to do a deeper dive into your obsessions. Yeah. And break and some, new, and, and break some and news I'm at the like, same time. I, and unlike the famous ex that I broke up with because he didn't like coffee, I will talk to you again. Because you've never experienced it. So that's different. Okay. So, <laughs> if I have to get on bended knee to break that news, someday, somehow. I, I, we'll see. Okay. We'll All right. see. Donatella, thank you so much for your time and for being such a good sport. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. I had a great time. And thank you for loving my dog. Hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Donatella Arpaia. It was uh, really enjoyable chatting with her. And one of the things that uh, you heard that we talked about is her, I would say, passionate. I, I'm, I can't even think of the right word. She has become gung-ho very publicly on her social media and you know, through a, a working relationship with Phillips about air fryers. And as you heard, I asked her how somebody who is a chef, and chefs are usually traditionalists, um, let themselves go into the direction of what was originally considered to be a gimmick, a gimmick gadget in an air fryer. So um, do you own Christine an air fryer? What are your thoughts on it as somebody who's been writing and talking about food for oh so long and you talk to chefs and restaurateurs every day? Do you have thoughts on the air fryer? Are you a traditional traditionalist that uh, was hesitant to get involved? Do you have one? Um, just curious where you stand on the, on the topic of the, uh, the now mighty air fryer. I do not have a standalone air fryer. I have one of those combination countertop toaster oven, air fryer, etc. 
So a multifunction gadget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that if you listen to people, an air fryer is just basically a convection oven. How many people have a convection oven in their you know, kitchen? It's the same thing. It's just been shrunk. That's all it is. Right. So it, what it's basically doing is giving people, an, it, it's putting a different name on it so that you can go buy another gadget and well, and in, and in turn, not necessarily heat up your whole entire house, you know, because it's this nice small little countertop thing it has great appeal because people think they're, you know, not frying their French fries, but they get all crispy or, you know, whatever else they choose to put in there. But I mean, basically it's a convection oven. And, well, and God- as Donatello said to me, and there is a distinction because I told her, as we just heard, that I too have the equivalent of a convection oven, the one you described, that you know I can toast a bagel in. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she said that that's not a real air fryer, and she would send me a real air fryer. So uh, I hope that's coming to my doorstep <laughs> at some point, um, because the the ones she really talks about and is passionate about are the more uh, the ones that look like cylinders that I that she um, promotes on her talk shop live channel and through her social media that looks more of the original traditional where you would like drop some potatoes in and make fries as opposed to the oven that you and I are talking about. Right. And, and with those, with like the ones that are cylinder, like the, my concern with those or my difficulty with them is that if you don't go in and shake the basket, during your cooking time, mm-hmm. then you have cooking. So there are a couple brands out there that are a little bigger and rounder, and then they spin on the inside. So you don't have to go and shake the basket and rotate them so that, you know, you get even cooking and crunchiness on all sides. You know, it's a personal preference. Just like, I mean, it's just like anything. Some people really like a great all clad pan. They're good. They're heavy. The handle's the right way. It's just like what, um, you know, a gazillion chefs use, right? Other people prefer now the new made in pans because, well, guess what? Tom Colicchio likes those and he's got his name behind it. And that has a different angle to the handle and a different grade steel on the bottom. And it go, you know, holds temperature at a different level. It really, it comes down to personal preference with anything. So if the circular one works for you and that's what you're most comfortable with and you think it makes the best fries and you're willing to spend whatever, you know, it's being sold for at that point in time, enjoy, use it. As long as something's being used and not in the bottom of the cabinet collecting dust and have it in your kitchen and enjoy. Okay, so it's time for another interview. Um, unfortunately we couldn't share the Jonathan Waxman interview with you because of audio, but the interview that we are going to share, the audio is great. So that's not an issue. And this is a conversation, Christine, that you had not long ago with, um, former soccer player, Abby Wambach, who is the all time leading goal scorer in us women's soccer history. Um, she is also the a founding partner of Angel City FC, which is a um, soccer club that will kick off for the first time in 2022. And you talked to her about her partnership with Gatorade and the role Gatorade has played throughout her entire career, but also more recently in empowering women athletes, uh, especially young women athletes. And as I know you don't have uh, daughters, but you are the parent of young athletes. And I am a girl dad whose daughter not only played soccer um, through high school, but also was a huge fan of Abby's and had the opportunity to meet her and train with her on a number of occasions. And to this day, still raves about that interaction because Abby was so wonderful. So... Um, instead of sitting here and trying to describe the interview that you did with 
Abby, about her relationship with Gatorade and the role it plays in women's sports. Let's take a listen. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Christine. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. So very exciting announcement today with the partnership with Gatorade. One of the comments that I heard in the promo video that was uh, released, it, it had this phrase called reach for greatness. And I was really kind of curious of how having Gatorade's endorsement in a way is going to help young girls kind of look at, you know, their achievement in a different way, kind of, you know, that stamp of approval. Cause we always think of Gatorade as, Hey, you know, that's, that's the sports drink. I, you know, back in the day, I want to be like Mike, but now we need to have a different conversation for young girls out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of things are, I got to unpack about that question. Number one, you know, Angel City FC is, and the brand of Angel City FC is trying to empower through modeling, right? What we can do as a organization, as a franchise with having a majority women owned franchise, just the, just the being out there in that way is, is groundbreaking. Right. And so to partner with the likes of huge entities like Gatorade in the sports world, I mean, who else do you think of? Like Gatorade is the premier brand in the sports world that you think of. You think of all of their amazing commercials. Like I can't wait to watch the Super Bowl because like what Gatorade commercial is going to come out. Right. I've been a Gatorade athlete for almost over 15 years now. And to me, what Gatorade continually shows time and time again is that they aren't just about the product. They are about the people who build the campaigns for the product, who build the relationships with the athletes. You know, a big reason why Gatorade is the way and, and, and is seen in the world the way that they're seen is because of the people that they partner with. Uh, this is, this is also an extension into the angel FC world, like angel city FC world. I think that, you know, being the founding partner of angel city FC shows me that they are not only willing to invest in uh, the future, but they're also trying to push the boundaries and the limits of what people think of when they think of sports, because there are still people in the world that only think of men and sports. Like those are the only thing that, that, that their mind goes to, but this is groundbreaking angel city FC. What we're doing is groundbreaking. And of course, Gatorade wants to be on the cutting edge of that. They are always wanting to be on the cutting edge of the best, the next best science. Um, so to partner with Angel City FC, um, knowing that all the sponsorship dollars that Angel City FC is getting is going to be going into these community initiatives, um, knowing that that Gatorade just started a women's advisory board, right? They just started a women's advisory board a couple of months ago. I sit on the board and lo and behold, you know, we find ourselves now doing a deal with Angel City FC, a majority women owned football club. It's like, yeah, these things matter. And why do they matter? They matter because representation sometimes is like the biggest form of activism that you can have, right? It's just being present, right? And Gatorade putting their stamp of approval um, on something that I'm a part of is just like, you know, the marrying of my, my worlds has just been so wonderful. Well, and you brought up a lot of really interesting points. I mean, I can think back 20 years ago, even when God forbid you put a woman reporter in a locker room because yep. you can't do it. But I look in my world, former athlete, my kids are athletes. Some of their best coaches were women and they kind of had modeled behavior that was, um, that they were able to apply things to beyond the, the field of play. So why do you think that women coaches offer such a unique perspective? Yeah, well, first of all, when women coaches are coaching women, they offer the same perspective. Um, there's this old, you know, adage that, that goes a little bit like this. Um, you know, a coach will stand in front of their, their team. And if, they're, he, if he is in, or she is in a, in a group of men, and the coach says, you know, 
one of you out there is just playing like crap. All of the players there will think, because it's a team of boys, a team of men will think, oh, they're talking about that guy. <laughs> and if you're talking to a, a locker room full of women or young girls, those girls are thinking they're talking about me. Yeah. And so the reason why it's so important and I tell that story and why it's important to me to tell that story is because girls and boys are different, right? Like we don't need to be um, necessarily given different pay checks or be treated differently. But, but when you go into the hospital, there's just some differences that have to be accounted for. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just means you have to have experience with said uh, gender, right? So women understand women differently than men understand women and the psychology and the mentality. And then not for nothing else, just for the fact of believing that you can do something for a living, right? Believing that a woman could be in charge of something is groundbreaking. Um, I went through quite a bit of my career being only coached by men. And so I had for a long time misogyny inside of me about what that meant. One of the first women that came to coach me, Pia Sundaga, she got in front of our team and started playing the guitar. And I thought, this lady is crazy. She has no idea how to be professional. And so for the first minute of this song, I was like, we're screwed. This is going to be a terrible experiment of bringing on this woman coach who's going to ruin it for us. She's going to blow our national team up. She ended up being the most successful and the most winningest national team coach, maybe in the history of our program. And it had nothing to do with, you know, her, it, it had everything to do with her being and stepping into her full femininity. Right. And showing us music was the thing that connected her to us. I didn't know that at the time I came to learn it over time. So to answer your question, representation matters. Well, and in some ways, a lot of this, um, what we're looking at, especially through the club is not just what happens on the field. A, a component of your organization is to give back to the community and and look at empowering them as well. So what do you think that this opportunity holds to show young girls that athlete or non-athlete, there are opportunities for you out there? Well, I think that that's super important, especially because this, the data that we have on, on girls dropping out of playing sports at such a young age is so high. Um, we have to make sure that we're giving girls and young women opportunities in the sports world that has historically been a man's world, right? So for Angel FC, Angel City FC and Gatorade to be partnering in this way, you know, 10% of those dollars that, that Gatorade is going to be giving Angel City FC is going to be going out into these community initiatives. It can be going into... Um, sponsorships of, or, or internships, getting, getting girls to come to some of these games, getting girls to come to the executive offices and meeting other women coming to and meeting these investors and female founding um, owners of this club. Like those are, those are initiatives and possibilities that would be life-changing just to talk to a Natalie Portman, just to talk to some of these former women's national team players who are founding investors. Like there are so many things that, that can be done and that will be done through these, this 10% model give back, which is, you know, it's going to revolutionize sports. And, and quite frankly, I think it's going to help build the brand of Angel City FC inside of the community of Los Angeles itself. Well, I, I hope that your model stands as a method for future teams to kind of adopt and embrace. And if you could tell a young girl, you know, what, what little tidbit of wisdom would you say when she's having a bad day and she doesn't want to go out there and practice and, and put in the effort, it little piece of advice, maybe to get her back on track. Yeah. So the piece of advice I would, I would give her is there's going to be more, more of those days than not, by the way, <laughs> there's going to be more harder days than, than, than easy days. That's just the nature of sport. And it's part of what you have to train your body and your mind to prepare for every single day. When you watch the national team playing in those games, 
it's done only because of really hard six months to a year long training environments that they've prepped into it. You're seeing the good stuff. Like when, when you get to the race or you get to the game, you've missed out all of the hard grueling training. And that is unfortunately what it takes to get to those big games. So yeah, you're going to think about quitting. Yeah. Your body's going to hurt. Yeah. For me, I just think, oh, this is a badge of honor. I wear this, I wear this sore body like a badge of honor because it's going to get me to that race. I'm training for a marathon. So that's why I'm saying all this. It's going to, and I'm in the brutal time of training right now for the New York City Marathon. So I'm just like, all I can think of is like, this is the brutal before the, the good. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Christine. Take care. I really enjoyed the conversation you had with Abby. And while it wasn't food related, Gatorade still plays a role in nutrition and hydration and it's tangential to everything that we do and talk about in the food world. So I thought that was a really um, awesome interview and a really important one to play. Um, It's interesting, her involvement with Angel City FC as a founding partner with the likes of Natalie Portman and Jennifer Garner and Serena Williams and Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy. It's a really exciting soccer club that is going to be coming. Well, they're very visible already, but we'll begin action next year. And it's it's interesting to see the role that Gatorade is playing in supporting her efforts through Angel City FC and then in general. And uh, I just I really enjoyed that interview. No, I she was a delight to chat with, and um, you know I I might not have daughters, but I was raised, uh, you know, to believe that girls can do anything. I went to all girls schools most of my life. And I believe strongly in the idea of you have to see it to believe it. And by putting women, you know, that soccer club is women run women owned. And that makes a difference. Uh, so that, you know, when I was growing up, we, I never really saw professional women's coaches on the field. Now you do. And there is a difference to that. And there, it's like anything. If you see a woman in leadership in a powerful position, it means I, I don't have to dumb down my expectations. I can dream as high as I want because the opportunity is available. The one anecdote that I really loved in the interview was her having developed a, a, I guess, a comfort zone, if, if for lack of a better word, but having been coached by men coaches uh, most of her life. And as she described it, uh, the, she had almost become misogynistic as a result of that. And then being coached by a former national team coach, Pia Sunhag, and her taking out the guitar at the first practice and playing guitar and and singing and using music. And um, that was a really funny story, a really eye-opening story to hear her tell that. And just as a side note, Pia, who was very successful with the U.S. national team, went on to have great success with the Swedish national team, who always gave the U.S. fits, and is now coaching um, the legendary player Marta on the Brazilian national team. So Pia is uh, still enjoying great success, even though she moved on from the U S national team. And I just thought that was a great story. How originally, initially Abby thought that she was sort of nutty. Hey, you know, you seem to know a lot about soccer. Maybe next time you should have taken that one. It wasn't offered to me. (laughs) I have, I have met Abby on a number of occasions. She has been very complimentary of my daughter's soccer skills to me without knowing it was my daughter, which was really nice. Um, I would have loved to have done it. But having said that, the interview you did with her was phenomenal. And I'm sure everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. So thanks for that. And with that, we will put the wraps on episode 14 of Excuse Me, May I Have Some More. We are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite. And the most insatiable appetite among the two of us belongs to my co-host, Christine Struble. Uh, My name is Brad Kramer. Christine, uh, we will do this again soon for episode 15. Bye, Brad. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.